Hello, my name is Justin DeClue, and I'm here today with... Dick Tracy Jr. himself, Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today we're going to be talking about a titan in the industry who hasn't made a movie in almost a decade till now. We're talking about Warren Beatty. Yes, we're doing this podcast to tie into the smash hit new film, <laughs> Rules Don't Apply. Uh, I know you've seen it. Justin, you've seen it. No, um, I haven't. I- excuse me, Justin. Everyone in America has seen this movie. <laughs> I mean, it opened on how many screens? Uh, like 2,300. And it made a million dollars, I think. It opened at 11th at the box office. Yeah, it made, um, I think, uh, had a $600 per screen average or something like that. And uh, when I saw it, my friend and I were the only two people in the theater. And it was opening night. It was opening night. And he said, I did the math and the per screen average works out to two paying customers at every screening. So, like, we were doing our part at that screening. It's funny... To consider what the studio executives thought would be the result of making a Warren Beatty starring, uh, I think he probably wrote and directed it as well, right? And like how it would get the audiences in, I guess the people who really liked him in the 70s, the last time he was really relevant in a continual way. Like not just that, it's a Warren Beatty movie about like Howard Hughes (laughs) in in 50s Hollywood. And to just dump that on 2300 screens, it's so weird. Like... For some reason, it didn't play at TIFF. That would have been such an ideal opening night gala or, uh, you know, at the New York Film Festival or something. And it just went right to the screens. Like, there was no buzz about it. There were no pre-reviews, nothing. It just kind of opened. But It was fantastic, though, right? Oh, terrific. Yeah. No, it, it was pretty bad. But what was interesting was seeing Warren Beatty, like flogging the movie on the press circuit warren Beatty, uh like well, he, like he appeared on interviews he was on like jimmy fallon he oh. was he was in toronto talking to all sorts of people and Beatty is one of those guys who for years you know never did any interviews and the other funny thing about rules don't apply is this is a dream project that he had harbored for something like 40 years for 40 years he'd wanted to make a howard hughes movie and then finally here it is and it's just a light comedy about howard hughes being a rascalian yeah, guy in the shadows it's as tepid as a movie could possibly be and it's just and like nobody cares there's something really kind of funny i think about like these dream project movies these ones that you know people pour their heart and soul into and then nobody cares well i mean martin scorsese is going to come out with silence around christmas time which is another of his 35 year old yeah. dream projects so We'll see how people react like they did to Rules Don't Apply. Only time will tell. (laughs) So Warren Beatty. Oh, I want one more thing about Rules Don't Apply. (laughs) I love the way Beatty is introduced to the movie because it it takes about like 20 or 30 minutes for Beatty to show up. Um, It's all about like... Is the movie like two hours long? It's, yeah, two two hours and 10 minutes or so. That's insane. And I think it had like 30 minutes cut out of it right before it came out too. But it's most of it's about this young ingenue in Hollywood who's, you know, been hired by Howard Hughes. Uh, Lily Collins is at Howard Hughes's house and this this guy like is in the shadows he just comes out of the bathroom and you know for the first two minutes he's on screen we only see uh howard hughes in shadows and i love the build-up it's like oh man first time in 15 years here he is <laughs> like it reminded me of uh the joker in batman being like jack is dead you can call me joker <laughs> now Speaking of Batman, I know you want to get into Dick Tracy. Let's do it. No, I'm going to put a button on it. We're going to get that to the end because that's the fun stuff. Let's talk about Warren Beatty coming up in the industry. Dropping facts on us, Will. I, I mean, here, here's what I know about Warren Beatty coming You didn't up read the 600-page-plus biography by Peter Biskin? I have that biography. I've read the chapters pertaining to Ishtar, Dick Tracy, and Bullworth. Okay. Um, and I've read a lot—I flipped to a lot of stuff about Warren Beatty's sex life. 
Biskin likes his dirt. Uh, (laughs) That's the biography, by the way, where the claim that Beatty has had sex with 12,000 women comes from. 12,000? That's what Biskin, using uh, his math, has come up with. And what was funny about Beatty being on the publicity circuit for the new movie was people have actually asked him about that number. And Beatty has been like... Listen, do the math. To achieve that number, I would have had to have had sex with three women a day with no repeats. It's not possible. Um, most of the stuff that I know about Warren Beatty actually does come from a Peter Biskin book, uh, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Yeah, another fun uh, sex-filled book. <laughs> and that is an expose about New Hollywood, and Beatty is a big part at the beginning of it because he was so involved in the making of stuff like Bonnie and Clyde and Shampoo and things like that. Yeah, sure. But he started pretty much as a, a journeyman actor. The thing that I guess about Warren Beatty's early career is that he's one of the last of the guys who was really like a manufactured star in the studio system. The last of your, like, Tab Hunters, your Rock Hudsons. Your Archall Juniors. Your Archall Juniors. <laughs> not, not exactly a studio actor, but yes. Hey, Wild Guitar, the classic by Ray Dennis Stengler. <laughs> uh, but Splendor in the Grass, I mean, he started, Beatty started on television and in Broadway, but Splendor in the Grass with Elia Kazan, a very auspicious debut for him, followed by about 10 years of flops. Yeah. Nothing that really took off until Bonnie and Clyde. But there was a weird precedent to that, which was a movie called Mickey One, which he made with Bonnie and Clyde director Arthur Penn. This one came out in 1965. You and I both watched this for the podcast. What did you think of it? I thought it was much weirder than I expected. I really enjoyed it. I really did, too. It's kind of very audacious that they would make this kind of movie with studio money. Yeah. And you can tell that they're being influenced directly by the French New Wave that was coming out at this point. Yeah. When we were talking about the other day, you compared it to, to like, Richard Lester. Yeah, that's what it feels like. Uh, It's a movie Beatty plays a a stand-up comedian who sort of has the affect of Lenny Bruce, but none of the talent, uh, who gets in trouble with the mob for reasons that we uh, never... are able to tell. But... And characters also argue about what those reasons could be and if it's actually happening or... But he goes on the lam. Uh, he starts in Greenwich Village but finds his way to Chicago where he stumbles his way back onto the stage but every time he's on the stage he risks being found out by the mob. The words existential and Kafka-esque have often been applied in relation to this film. There's, there's an element to the movie that's like, you know, he needs to be on stage but he also can't be on stage. It's also very compelling and surprisingly funny oh yeah because it's very goofy at at times because you're dealing with this kind of weird uh meta reality where everything is flexible around what Beatty is going through yeah and the way uh, they shoot chicago uh, arthur penn the director is working with the same cinematographer who worked with robert brisson a lot Mm -hmm. chicago has this really like otherworldly dreamlike quality it actually reminded me a little bit of like carnival of souls which we watched a few weeks ago definitely (laughs) especially with that stark black and white photography Uh i think probably the most unsurprising thing is that the film flopped at the box office it didn't do well it led um arthur penn into a few movies where he was just making studio pictures which include the very good the chase Hmm. Uh, you know just to take a little sidebar i'm surprised that mickey one is not talked about more in like film circles it doesn't even really have like a blu-ray release yeah it's it's weird. I mean, it's a movie that has its fans. So I watched a few Beatty movies for this podcast, and I had the same impression of Beatty that I've always had, which is that I'm not particularly crazy about him as an actor. Really? I, I have to clarify, because like I have some fondness for him, mm-hmm. because, like I don't know, I watched Dick Tracy a lot when I was a kid, and <laughs> Beatty, Beatty like, has, a cer- has a certain charisma to him. And, you know, whenever I see Beatty, it's like, oh, man, like here he is, 
the star of all stars. Is that what you feel? Because that was never something that really entered my mind because Beatty was never... Um, no one that I knew talked about him. Like, my parents never mentioned Beatty or anything like that. None of the, the books that I read in my early film researching life talked about him that much beyond him starring in Bonnie and Clyde. I was definitely, from a young age, aware of Beatty as just, like, the king of Hollywood. Hmm. Like, I remember seeing, you know, you'd see him at the Oscars, and he just had a... Sitting beside a, like, Annette Benning with a giant grin on his face. And with, like, like him and Jack, like, like joking with each other, and, like... It just had this aura of, like, mm. the, these guys are the kings. Every so, time Beatty would appear on the Oscars, I'd always be like, oh, he's still alive. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder where he is. That, that's another reason why the failure of Rules Don't Apply is so fascinating, because it's like, you know, here he is, the king of Hollywood, and nobody cares anymore. Yeah, but he's the king of Hollywood to people that grew up in the 70s, pretty much, And to right? people who live in Hollywood on his <laughs> block. <laughs> Do you think he's still king of Hollywood? Like, he's like, hey, remember me? I made Dick Tracy. I imagine that if he goes into any restaurant in Hollywood, he doesn't have to pay. I don't. That, mm. that, that, that's my guess. But I, I like the idea that after rules apply, that like disappears. They're like, you proved your worth, <laughs> which was nothing. But getting back to my point, despite all that, th- there's a certain quality to Beatty's performances, which I would describe as Chevy Chase-esque. I absolutely agree with you. Uh, you actually posted a photo of him in like 90s rap outfits. Yeah, from Bullworth. Yeah. Uh, like... So many of his movies, even the ones where he shouldn't be like this, he has this like befuddled deer in the headlights quality to him. Like Reds, for instance, which I watched. I enjoyed Reds. Which is probably considered his magnum opus, I would say. Yeah, definitely. The three and a half hour with intermission he, movie about a uh, well he stars as john reed the journalist who wrote 10 days that shook the world and mm-hmm. covered the bolshevik revolution and uh, was an avid american socialist himself but i kind of feel like watching the movie it was like what's with this like weirdly absent-minded guy who is le- who is leading the charge for this revolution like that's who he plays in every single movie but, but it, he's like this befuddled dude that you expect to like lean against a globe and it's spin and he fall yeah exactly and like this movie has uh, Jack Nicholson as Eugene O'Neill in it. Another distracting bit of casting, in my opinion. Um, but I kept, you kept th- expecting him to break into a Joker-like grin, like he's sitting back, <laughs> was like smirking the entire time. But every time Nicholson's on screen, I'm kind of like, geez, I wonder if somebody with that guy's charisma playing John Reed, it might have been a little bit better. Somebody who you could a- imagine actually like leading a revolution, you know? The movie kind of shows that John Reed didn't even really lead a revolution. No, but I mean, John Reed is out there at like union halls, like shouting fiery rhetoric, or, you know, we see him trying to organize organized unions all around America. I mean, maybe the the befuddled quality works when he's dealing with Diane Keaton because he's a character where the revolution is much more important to him than his marriage. But I mean, I don't, I don't know. I just don't quite buy him. Oh, because when you see him in something like Shampoo, that works perfectly because he's... Yes, but I don't know. Even in that movie, I feel like he needs a little bit more... Like, I liked him in Mickey 1 because he had swagger. Yeah, but I think that you're... <laughs> imposing your kind of own values at what you expect the king of Hollywood to be, right? But that's a secret weapon. That's how he gets all the women in Shampoo to like him and stuff like that, is he is that befuddled, kind of distracted guy. Okay, I am going to make a note. <laughs> oh, I need to that. change my strategy? I am going to put it in my back pocket? <laughs> yeah. As a guy, I, when I, I was single, people used to call me the Warren Beatty of Toronto. Me, I've been going out, you know, like with my Andrew Dice Clay leather jacket. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, saying, um, dirty limerick. Hey, hickory dickory dock. 
<laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. This is a uh, PG-rated podcast. Whoa. We should do an Andrew Dice Clay episode. We are not going to do an Andrew Dice Clay episode. <laughs> but I think that that's what I found actually appealing going through a lot of his movies is that I remembered Warren Beatty as this slick kind of huckster. Because even in Bonnie and Clyde, the movie that kind of rose him to a level mm. that he never expected to go to, he is still a big weenie in that movie, too. Like, yes. it's He's literally impotent. impotent. Yeah. yeah. Um, so why, okay, why did uh, Bonnie and Clyde succeed and Mickey One fail? Uh, I think Bonnie and Clyde took a lot of the instincts and stylistic tics that they did in Mickey One, but just grounded them in something that was relatable to an audience, and that's why they enjoyed it. I think there's definitely that. Um, it has all of the qualities of something like Breathless that mm-hmm. um, that that were cool. Yeah, but um, none of the alienating qualities, <laughs> like jump cuts and stuff like that. Uh, and, and also the fact that uh, Bonnie and Clyde were characters that the young audiences could project themselves onto a little more. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to suggest that the movie's not critical of Bonnie and Clyde, because Bonnie and Clyde are like kind of callow youth in the film. I mean, but it's undeniable that they're also cool. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what really attracted people to the movie. I mean, you could argue that, like, oh, the way that it portrayed violence and stuff like that um, was really critical, and you hadn't seen something like that. But it also looks cool. Yeah. Like that slow motion, um, then being shot up at the end, um, taken out of context of the movie. It looks cool, and that's why people like John Woo used it for their own uses later on. And they're just very pretty and free, Mm -hmm. and they're out there, you know, Robin Banks. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a movie that... That uh, was very controversial at the time for supposedly glamorizing criminals. I've only seen Bonnie and Clyde once, and I like it. I think it's a movie that I wish I could have seen in its original context because its innovations have been so, like... Um, Cannibalized. Yeah, integrated into, you know, the fabric of society, really. I mean, the idea of uh, ambiguously heroic or, or like, anti-hero characters... You know, before this, there was a studio code that said criminals had to be punished i mean that still exists in china but <laughs> yeah that we need to go back to that <laughs> oh and then we can restart the revolution all over again mm-hmm. so we didn't really talk about that warren Beatty was also a perfectionist which is one of the reasons that he didn't make many movies after he became a big star mm-hmm. because he would kind of puppet the directors that he worked with or at least disgust them to death when they made movies or if it was a movie that he directed too he would be micromanaging the marketing process every step of the way he would be there like something like McCabe and Mrs. Miller which is an undeniably classic and Beatty again plays a aloof kind of loser character <laughs> wait a movie where it works I yeah. think because it's all about subverting that, like, Western uh, macho character. But if you ever read about him and his relationship with Robert Altman, it was a very fraught one. Mm. That, like, Beatty would be like, no, we need two, three more takes before I got this. And Altman would be like, no, we're done. Like, we're moving on. Or it's similar to his penultimate film, A Town and Country, directed by Peter Chelsom, which was a movie that ended up costing over a hundred million dollars which is insane because it's just like a stupid like com I've, i haven't seen it of course but <laughs> that's insane but uh, yeah I, I apparently because of Beatty's meddling and we should talk about like Beatty's directorial efforts right so the first one is uh, heaven can wait yeah i saw it when i was a kid who cares yeah it doesn't matter yeah moving on very popular in its day though mm-hmm. i and think it was nominated for a bunch of oscars i know it's crazy and i it, mean we're gonna talk about later about things that were nominated for oscars <laughs> it's baffling dick tracy reds uh good movie uh you know very serious in its uh and does justice to the topic of socialism in america and abroad mm-hmm. uh, never boring never boring i mean the movie is probably more about the relationship between uh, i think so that it feels Keaton, more like a romantic but it's a good one i mean you kind of see her as this 
well, she starts as a wife in what passed for Bohemia in Philadelphia at the time, but you see her come into her own as a, a real journalist and thinker outside of just his shadow. Yeah, I think that that was the thing that shocked me the most is that she is almost the main character in Reds and he mm-hmm. is like the supporting character, mm-hmm. even though that by the end, he's the one who takes up most of the screen time. The 80s is a very interesting decade for Warren Beatty because it's uh, Reds in 1981, no movies until 1987, a little movie called Ishtar. We talked about that at length in the Elaine May episode and it was done as a favor to Elaine May. He produced it. Mm-hmm. And then... He just was saving himself up for his magnum opus, Dick Tracy. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, One of my favorite movies when I was a kid. That is Uh, insane. Doesn't really hold up for me, I would say, although it has stuff in it that I like. You just watched it again for this podcast. Mm. So I had watched it probably four or five years ago when I was editing my movie Teddy Bomb. I actually took a break to watch Dick Tracy. For inspiration. (laughs) Yeah. And I remember being very taken by its visual style. And finding it almost unbelievably dull. (laughs) Like, I could not believe how little happened in Dick Tracy. So this time, when I sat down, watching a Blu-ray, seeing it as good as it could be, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt. And for the first 30 minutes, I was all in. I love its visual style. Um, Your dirty lips. You need a bath. The insane prosthetics on all the villains. That is... Prune face. Oh, my God. I think lips is the worst. Uh, well, because he actually does still look like Paul Sorvino, but just <laughs> but like... But with like a weird, like, uh, freakish... Yeah. Um, that scene where he's eating uh, lo- uh, oysters. oysters. <laughs> I kind of approached it going, he's shooting it like a cereal, right? Like like a 40s cereal or Or 30s. like a, a 30s newspaper comic or comic strip. Uh, exactly. Yeah. But it seems that the things that... Uh, Warren Beatty likes about Dick Tracy do not translate to any kind of excitement on screen. The movie is very static, isn't it? It's so static. There's, there's I'm sure he would action. argue that like, even the compositions are meant to recreate comic book um, panels and stuff like that, but there's no action in the movie. It's almost insane how little kind of conflict and suspense that come out of the things you would expect from a character named Dick Tracy. Um, okay, first of all, there is the scene where Warren Beatty uh, slides down a lamp pole. And, <laughs> Awkwardly. And, I assume it's him. And jumps on top of a moving car. There are four <laughs> montages? Yeah. Back in business, da 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 da. All the Stephen Sondheim songs. It's funny watching this movie in relation to Batman, the movie that came out the year before. I mean, they both have the exact same uh, musical score. Danny Elfman scores. Yeah. I, I mean, Clint- can you imagine Danny Elfman's face when he handed in that score? And they were like, yeah, I guess this is good. He's like, yeah, suckers. His Darkman score is also the exact, the exact same. same. I mean, this is a movie that's clearly very indebted to Batman, both in the marketing and in, you know, the kind of like retro chic look of the film. Now, people um, may not remember when this movie was coming out. It was a huge deal. I could not pick up a comic book without Dick Tracy being on the back or Madonna and like the classic tagline, I'm on my way. And at opening night, like they gave out T-shirts that said, I saw it first. They wanted to recreate that that Batman magic. And also, like Batman, it has, you know, a, sa- a soundtrack by a very famous pop star, Madonna. Uh, you know, Stephen Sondheim. <laughs> at Stephen Sondheim. Uh, but, and, you know, Prince did Batman. And also the two of them, you know, aside from the kind of retro look, they both have a big name hammy villain. Al Pacino and Dick Tracy. Who was Oscar nominated for Dick Tracy. No, he was not. Best supporting actor. He was nominated. For that him. is insane. I want Tracy dead. <laughs> what? 
I want to know how that happened. I mean, the film was a big hit, wasn't it? Well, it made $100 million, which was kind of like what it needed to make to not be perceived as a flop. Mm -hmm. But I I think the reason it was not as successful as Batman is because, you know... It's not good. Because it's not good. But also, like, Batman was a little bit more tied into the zeitgeist of the moment. Like, there's so much in that movie about kind of like, you know anxiety over over cities and and crime whereas there's something very kind of quaint and nostalgic about dick tracy well i mean that could be interesting if it was done in an engaging way but dick tracy also has a plot that's like three dick tracy movies smushed together with all the fun parts cut out yeah and you kind of you leave it wondering what exactly attracted uh, Beatty to the material i mean aside from just the look of it which is undeniably incredible i mean, I mean it the, won the, the, an oscar for best cinematography i believe rightfully so i think i mean the movie looks amazing and production design and and the makeup are all uh, incredible. But I mean, Beatty, you know, this famous Hollywood liberal. What was it that attracted him to this like police story? Because like Chester, a fascist. Yeah, um, I mean, Chester Gould was a very right wing uh, comic strip artist. And I mean, Dick Tracy in the movie is constantly breaking the law to get to his end goals as well. Yeah. Uh, and I think the biggest problem with the movie is just the Beatty is such a fucking wet blanket in the middle of it. I mean, uh, he has so boring. He has no charisma at all, and you and you wonder why Madonna wants to fuck him so much in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, because he's Warren Beatty. So much of the movie is this love triangle between Madonna and Dick Tracy and Tess Trueheart, which. It's just incredibly boring. <laughs> That's what kids want to see. And all the stuff with, you know, the kid, Dick Tracy Jr., you know. Ugh, <laughs> terrible. But, you know, whenever Pacino's on screen, I, I have a I have a chuckle. <laughs> I mean, it like looks it? so good, though. It's <laughs> so boring. I cannot emphasize that enough. Like, if you love Dick Tracy and you remember it as a kid, go watch it again. Watch it with people that have not yeah. seen it. See how that goes <laughs> over. <laughs> well, also, too, like, imagine watching it now because it's just so sedate, like, compared to one of the modern comic book movies. Well, I like how when, it when ends... This, when I was a kid, like, this was state-of-the-art. <laughs> I like how it ends with Dick Tracy just brutally murdering all the villains <laughs> uh, um, with only the sound of gunfire yeah, behind him. Dick Tracy with a Tommy gun as they Standing all there, come like... out. Flat top and itchy and the whole gang. <laughs> just murder them brutally. Hey, did you like Dustin Hoffman as Mumbles? Uh, I couldn't believe how much he was in it. Can you imagine being Dustin Hoffman being like, I'm going to be in this Warren Beatty picture after Ishtar. This is going to be the one that's going (laughs) to knock people's socks off. Big boy did it. (laughs) Big boy did it. Big boy did it. (laughs) I don't know. I didn't like looking at those actors in that prosthetic because it was so horrifying. I would love to see Dick Tracy as just like a coffee table book, you know? Oh, just, yeah, with the still, the concept Give me all the uh, hashtag one perfect shots from the film. I can't, I actually searched one perfect shot Dick Tracy to see how many times they had used it. Uh, Also, I love the cast full of just like wasted people. Hey, look, there's Henry Silva or Mary Warnov showing up for one shot. Dick Van Dyke is in like two scenes as the district attorney and like, I don't think he's even in focus. <laughs> I mean, Warren Beatty, as we said, was a perfectionist. I searched random roles, Dick Tracy, mm-hmm. to see if anybody had done those AV Club interviews about being on the film. The only one I could find was Mary Warnov, who said that she did one line for one day. She argued about how she should say it. 
Warren Beatty made her do it a different way. Months later, Warren Beatty called her back up and said, I need you to come back in the studio and reshoot your one line <laughs> because you were right. You said it the right way the first time. So Dick Tracy, a flawed film, a not very good film, but a movie that I really enjoy is Dick Tracy Special, <laughs> which is the movie, famous, which is the TV special that he made in 2010, just so that he could hold on to the rights to Dick Tracy. Why? He was, what are you going to do with this Warren Beatty? Are you going to make another fucking Dick Tracy movie starring you? For 25 years, Warren Beatty has been thrown. <laughs> that he will make Dick Tracy 2. It's a, like, who would fund that? Who would, who would see Dick Tracy 2? Starring Warren Beatty. Jeez, the man is 80 years old. But he won't, like he was, in 2010, he was being sued by like King Feature Syndicate. Uh, because be, That's why you haven't seen any Dick Tracy like comic strips or movies for the last 20, or well, there have been comic strips, but, but no cartoon shows. Uh, is because uh, Warren Beatty holds the rights and he had to prove that he had made at least one Dick Tracy thing so he made this special that was hosted by Leonard Malton. That is honestly just Warren Beatty playing Dick Tracy, <laughs> walking in onto the lot. Uh, I guess Universal. Well, well, some movie studio. Like the the special opens with like s- some young like female production assistants being like, "Oh my gosh, oh, it's Dick Tracy! Dick Tracy's coming! The famous detective is coming! Oh, he's so dreamy!" And then you know the car comes up and the music plays and. Warren Beatty, you know, 75 years old, wearing the the yellow coat, comes out of the car and the women are like, oh, Mr. Tracy, Mr. Tracy. Oh, like, like it's insane. He's so dreamy to all these girls, this elderly man. There's no content to the special at all. So most of the special or it's like 50 percent. Uh, Leonard Malton being like, in 1933, Chester Goulds created, you know, blah, blah, blah. How much do you think they paid Leonard Malton to do that? Oh, I don't know. A thousand bucks. <laughs> you think he just showed up? A thousand bucks and lunch with Warren Beatty. Like, he probably didn't uh, tell Leonard Malton what he had to do. Like, he thought it was something legitimate. Yeah. So half the special is just Beatty, like, spouting facts. Wait, dressed as Dick Tracy, so, sitting in a chair. Yeah, <laughs> half the fact is Malton spouting facts about Dick Tracy. And then half of it is Malton interviewing Warren Beatty in character as Dick Tracy. Clearly unscripted. It's clear that Beatty is just making it up as he goes along. And he's and so as Beatty comes up to the table, Malton shakes his hand and is like, I have to say, you look for for a for a character who is 130 years old, you look wonderful. What is your secret? And Beatty goes, uh uh two things. Uh pomegranates and SP small portions. Ugh. And then it just it just goes on like there's a section where they talk about the Warren Beatty film and so there's He's Beatty like, not impressed by Warren Beatty there's, playing Dick Tracy. <laughs> there's Beatty as Tracy talking about Warren Beatty being like you know, uh, that Beatty, he's a he's a bit of a Hollywood liberal, bit of a bit of a limousine liberal, spouting his views. I'm a conservative, and so that's terrible, doesn't... terrible. But then the special ends. I've been going on about this too long. But... Yeah, you you just summarize <laughs> the entire special. People can go on YouTube and watch this. Okay, but it ends with Malton saying, uh, "Mr. Tracy, did you hear that Warren Beatty has been considering making Dick Tracy too?" And Dick Tracy, <laughs> Dick Tracy goes, "Oh well, if that's something he did, I would remove my hat." <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that's that's Beatty, you know. That is his passion project, <laughs> Dick Tracy 2. I hope he does it. It's you know, he's still got another 10 years of life. Let's make this happen. <laughs> Let's start a Kickstarter. Can you imagine if he did that? Oh, I'd give that Kickstarter just for the novelty of it. 5 bucks. <laughs> and then Warren Beatty's final film came out as a director. Other than, I keep forgetting that rules don't apply uh, came out. So did most of the uh, well, film going audience. Listen, every screening is sold out right now, so <laughs> you're not even going to get into it. But yes, Bullworth. 
Yeah, from 1998, I believe. It Like Dick Tracy, I remember Bullworth being everywhere. <laughs> Just posters and stuff like that. There was a cassette tape that sat in my dad's garage for at least a decade. <laughs> and I would walk by it every time I would go in. It was just Bullworth, that mouth stretched out and like the rapper jumping out of it. Yeah. And I had never seen it. I saw it seven or eight years ago and I didn't think very much of it. I thought it was kind of like... I, what I remembered it being was this like Hollywood limousine liberals like condescending take on black life in America. Uh, yeah, I could see you. What, what do you mean you can see me? <laughs> <laughs> I could see you uh, uh, viewing it as that. Watching it this time, I even though it still has some of those flaws, I really kind of enjoyed it this time. I mean, watching it for the first time, I was like, I don't know if Warren Beatty is the person to make this movie. Yeah, well... Because it, it, it is filled with a lot of stereotypes and stuff like that. Like the scene where he's rapping at that fundraiser <laughs> and, like, the two black women. Yeah. So that's a bit cringeworthy. And it's also a, a bit cringe-inducing at the end when uh, he's about to kiss Halle Berry and she goes, Bullworth, you know you my N-word. <laughs> <laughs> Warren Beatty wrote that down. Yeah. And he made somebody say that. But... Uh, you know, in light of uh, recent world events, uh, mm -hmm. the movie has become... Justin uh, Trudeau becoming uh, <laughs> yeah. prime minister. Uh, but but the, the movie is uh, certainly prescient, uh, I would say. Uh, uh, absolutely. It still has that kind of Dick Tracy problem where I feel it's not as engaging as I expect it to be. And I that could just be the end result of him literally being a perfectionist about everything, which makes it a little bit airy feeling. Sure. Uh, for those who don't know what Bullworth is, and I mean, you obviously know what it is, like... I didn't know what it was. It's fucking Bullworth fever out there. But uh, it's a movie that was mentioned a lot, at least on Twitter, during the last election, because Beatty plays a uh, Bill Clinton-era senator who uh, has kind of sold out his values. He's a Democrat, but he's all for welfare reform, blah, 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 all of those like Clintonian uh, New Democrat values. And he decides to put an assassination out on himself. Which is not explained in the movie until like 40, 45 minutes in. Yeah. So if you do not know what the movie is about, you will be lost for the first 45 minutes. And because he's about to die, he decides to start telling the truth and start telling about how corporations control everything and it's just a big one-party system. In yeah. rap. Yeah. Which I kind of enjoy. I think his befuddled persona is put to good use in this film. And I mean, the stuff he says, like there's that scene at the debate where... Uh, where he's talking to the uh, moderators and he says, oh, listen, you guys, you're rich guys who are funded by the same people who fund my campaign. It's one big club. What are we all doing here? I mean, Just telling it like it is. But I mean, the fact is he's right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very true. And, you know, it, it's interesting watching it in light of this last election where... Do you think Trump had a Bullworth type adventure? Well, Trump is now filling his cabinet with like Goldman Sachs employees. So of course he's a con man, but his rhetoric was very much, you know, sticking it to the establishment and being off script. And then on the Democratic side, you know, Bernie Sanders was saying the sorts of things that Bullworth says now. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, a, a prescient film and an interesting historical document. You know, maybe if Bernie Sanders had wrapped his uh, maybe. opinions and maybe. truth, we would have a different future than the uh, nuclear wasteland <laughs> that we will see in a few months. Well, you know, future civilizations will discover this podcast. And... <laughs> well, who is this Warren Beatty figure? <laughs> the king, they say? Yeah. All right. So, Beatty. Well, okay, I, I have one last thought about Warren Beatty, though. The real reason that I wanted to do Warren Beatty um, is because... You love Dick Tracy. Because I love Dick Tracy, because we spent like half the podcast on it. But there's something contradictory about his legacy, I think. He's somebody who is just like film history personified. He he has a monumental career. He's been he's been there for, you know, revolutions in the film industry. At the same time, I find his career a disappointment. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, he's only made a handful of movies, and he's had his fair share of turkeys. Like, he's had uh, a majority of turkeys, like, one would say. Like The Fortune, like, for God's sake, I mean, you know, loves, Love Affair, I mean, Town and Country. So how long could one person just ride on the success of a movie that changed an industry, though, like Bonnie and Clyde? Yeah. Uh, I'd forever, obviously. Well, I mean, it's interesting when you think that he basically had three unqualified box office successes. I mean, not counting Splendor in the Grass. But there was Bonnie and Clyde, uh, Shampoo, and Heaven Can Wait. I mean, even Reds, which made a lot of money, was not profitable. Because... It was nominated for a whole bunch of Oscars as well. Yeah. So people just like Warren Beatty in Hollywood. I guess. Like, he and, must be a nice guy who gives big tips or something And like I that. mean, he was famous for so many years, I guess, because of his, like, tabloid misadventures. Uh, what a Lothario. Yep. Going around to the bumbling Warren Beatty. He's like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> 12,000 women. So, what are we doing next week, Will? Uh, Edgar G. Elmer. Yeah, Edgar G. Who is Edgar G. Friends. Elmer? Edgar G. is a director that came out of the, once again, a revolution happening in German cinema, uh, working with such greats as F.W. Murnau and on such pictures as The Last Laugh, came to Hollywood, Big Dreams, worked on a bunch of um, universal uh, pictures. Well, not a bunch of. He worked on one, one The Black Cat, a Bela Lugosi, Boris Karloff Classic, but not in mainstream consciousness. But then he made the poor decision of sleeping with the uh, the studio head's girlfriend. I think so. He, he was knocked down to poverty row. No director embodies the poverty row studio system better than Edgar G. Elmer. And he's also the man who brought art to poverty row. He a man, the man who brought his personality to low budget B to Z grade movies. And by that we mean. Art Deco backgrounds. <laughs> yes. So uh, for the next podcast, we encourage you to watch The Black Cat with Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff and also Ulmer's magnum opus Detour. Which you can find very easily because it has mysteriously um, transitioned to the public domain. Mm-hmm. But we're, I would say get the image disc that was released a while back because the picture quality really matters on these movies. And they're really short and they're really good. Yeah. So you should check them out. You should also get prepared that Edgar G. Ulmer is the biggest bullshit artist in interviews that there ever was. Yes. He claims that he invented the tracking shot. <laughs> uh, probably sound on film as well, if we're going to go that far. Yeah. But uh, I'm really excited to talk about them. And hey, where can the listeners write us? They can write us at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. We had some letters on the last episode. We hope to in the next episode. <laughs> Will looks so sad right now while he's saying this. <laughs> and you can go on iTunes and give us a rating. And by give us a rating, I mean five stars. Yeah, not and, like that asshole you just won. Man, he's, they really burrowed into your skin, didn't it? <laughs> Two people gave us one. What the fuck? There's one on the U.S. iTunes as uh, well that's one. Well, that's okay. It balances out. One on the U.S., <laughs> one on the Canadian. Listen, you don't want just our podcast to have five stars, because that is obviously It's a fraud. Just, yeah. yeah, it's a fraud. Yeah. But go on and write us a review about how much you love us. We'd really appreciate that. Are you a Justin or are you a Will? <laughs> Well, what is that? I mean, like, you know, it's like, are you a Stones person or a Beatles person? It's it's like, are they a Justin person or a Will person? (laughs) Do they love the cold calculating feelings of Will? Or do they love the... Unbridled passions (laughs) of Justin. (laughs) Don't start that fight. We don't, we don't want, like, Will and Justin t-shirts start coming out and stuff like that. Well, this could be planting the seeds for our inevitable Beatles-like <laughs> breakup. When uh, people make a t-shirt and it's just your face really big and I'm the out-of-focus guy in the background <laughs> holding the microphone. Uh, well, until then, my name is Justin the Clue. I was Will Sloan. Thanks for listening.
Going through all of Warren Beatty's films, one of the things that you realize is that he kind of made and participated in mid-budget film. I guess. I mean, they were pretty big movies, at least in terms of profile. Yeah, but uh, stuff like Shampoo. Sure. Or, um, I don't know, The Fortune. The kind of movies they don't make anymore. All right. The kind of pictures I, they made in I the I think you're trying era. to do a Peter Bogdanovich, <laughs> yeah. but it's almost like a threatening Eastern European as well. You're like, <laughs> that's a bit the like, kind of pictures they do not make anymore. It has a bit of a Clint Eastwood vibe yeah. to it. A little bit of Peter Lorre in there yeah. as well. Uh, do you think that that's something that you um, feel sad about when you look at all those superhero films and you're like, uh, where are the terms of endearment in I, here? I know. When I go to the theater with my wife uh, and we just want to get <laughs> My get, wife. Get, get, my wife <laughs> and we just want to get away from it all we it, it's just it's just explosions and kung fu fights and all you know i mean i i uh, even though i don't like uh rules don't apply very much uh, i don't think it's cause for celebration that it was that it bombed that it made zero dollars well we were talking about i mean this is something that comes up all the time on film twitter or i guess usernet groups is that what the kids are using yeah. these days is that you know the mid-budget film is dead which is undeniable yeah. that the budgets have dropped to a point that is almost ridiculous that people are expected to make films or they're giant blockbusters. Yeah, I guess I, I guess it's because something like Rules Don't Apply, which cost $25 million, to make a profit would have to make over $50 million, mm-hmm. which is just not... People aren't going to see movies like Rules Don't Apply at $50 million levels anymore. But do you think people consciously go, like, it needs to be a big budget production for me to go see it? I, I don't uh, think so. I, I think there's an element of that. I think that you know Netflix and stuff like that I mean I know that people have been like sounding the death knell for movies ever since like television came in (laughs) but I mean at the same time I just know by anecdotal evidence that fewer people see movies that aren't events anymore like you know more people the theatrical release window seems smaller and the entertainment on TV is you know as good as most uh, mid-budget Hollywood movies were but I think that people still go out I don't know if I want to say as much, but they still go out quite a bit, right? And most people, they don't look into reviews or stuff like that. They just go to the movie theater and they go, what is playing? What do I want to see? It's just because these big budget films are marketed so heavily towards them that that's the thing that they're going to go check out in the cinema. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> I was hoping you have an argument and be like, not as many good movies are being made than they were in the 90s or the 80s. Well, I think that's true. And I mean, you're going to say that, well, we have Manchester by the Sea. We have Moonlight. I have not seen that film. We have but... all, well, people might say that. But yeah. I mean, the thing is, so many of the movies that actually are good are being produced. You know, the mainstream movies, I mean, are being produced by like Megan Ellison, you know, these uh, kind of independent patrons or so, even something like, a, you know, Wolf of Wall Street was an independent production by a bunch of, you know, different investors that Warner Brothers bought. That's I mean, insane that it was an ind- independent yeah, production. Like, like stu- Martin Scorsese studios, can't make a Leonardo DiCaprio starring <laughs> film. Yeah, studios aren't funding these movies uh, because it's just... And, you know, part of it has to do with the fact that, okay, you're a studio, you can make a movie like, uh, you know, Wolf of Wall Street that will make that will be profitable or you can make a, a DC comic cinematic universe that can make a billion dollars every time out and will be, you know, sustainable for years. Like after Batman versus Superman didn't do as well as people had hoped, 
Warner Brothers, you remember there was that article in the trades where Warner Brothers said that they were actually doubling down on their strategy of making more uh, like Harry Potter, Lego and Batman movies. Those yeah. are going to be the instead of learning a lesson and being like, whoa, yeah. maybe if we make something bad, people won't go see it. They yeah. were like, no, we're going to make more of them. Right. One Fantastic Beast. Now, nah, now there's eight Fantastic Beasts. So like, I mean, I don't know. It, it used to be in the 90s. I think there was this sort of attitude that like, OK, if we're Disney, we make a movie like Aladdin or something that makes a ton of money that leaves a little money left over to do stuff at touchstone like I don't the know. kid yeah <laughs> the bruce willis classic like a, a movie like just to pull a name out of a hat like high fidelity from 15 years ago was a touchstone movie like i don't think touchstone would make that movie anymore you think that because it was too specific and it it was that mid-budget range thing what do you what, think it's about... like why would they make that when they could just make another marvel movie because the idea that you need to make bigger budget films as a reaction of your big budget film failing it's insane to me like i i remember reading an article you know blumhouse the horror yeah. movie company they make the purge and stuff like that so many articles are like wow they're being so successful on this crazy model that they're doing which is they give a million dollar to a film market it for 10 million dollars and they see like a 25 million dollar return i mean the great thing is that uh, when a studio announces its whole like release strategy, all it takes is for one movie to really flop or one movie to be really successful to just throw a, a wrench in the works and change everything. Yeah, but like maybe it's going to turn to... Um, I remember Steven Spielberg said at one point that like this big giant blockbuster system has to fail at one point. Pictures at a Revolution, a really good book by Mark Harris, um, kind of pinpointed the the time when it was Dr. Doolittle was this giant bloated mega production and Bonnie and Clyde kind of came out from under it and reshaped the way that people were making movies. Like, do you think that can still happen at this point? Well, I mean, I think it could happen and I think it has happened to a certain extent. I mean, the rise of streaming services, Mm. uh, has has shifted the landscape. It's not going to happen in the way that it did in the late sixties. I mean, I don't think, I really don't think the genie is going to go back in the bottle and we're going to have a resurgence in like mid-budget $30 million movies in theaters. I remember that Steven Spielberg article again. He was quoted saying that for big budget productions, people would have to pay more than like lower budget productions. I wonder what world that that, system would work. Well, that's how IMAX and stuff like that. Well, yeah. And that's how it was in the silent era when like (laughs) DW Griffith would make a movie, you know, the tickets would cost like $2, which was like a billion dollars in today's money. (laughs) (laughs) As opposed to the 10 cents to see um, some silent comedy. Exactly. Maybe it should go back to that. Maybe people would go see the cheaper stuff more often. But like, don't you know yourself, like if a, if like a Woody Allen, movie comes out and you have to pay $15 at the varsity. I'm like, that is ridiculous. Yeah, Yeah. like, why? It's going to be the same movie when I see it, you know, at home. But if it was $5, oh, sure. I would go see it without uh, batting an eye. That's why I only see movies on Tuesday. (laughs) Me too.